I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. One simplified tool for assessing geopolitical frameworks is to consider resources, routes, and relationships. Critical resources change with shifts in technology, routes evolve to fit patterns of supply and demand, and with this, relations rise and fall as technological demands and capabilities alter the relative value of geographies. Transitions between primary energy sources create significant shifts in global competition but also raise domestic issues of access, equality, and subnational or socioeconomic rights. Societies are not monolithic, despite the common use of the nation-state as the central unit of analysis. To discuss some of these complexities, explore the relationship between resources, land rights, and capital formation, and consider the place of Latin America in the context of global strategic competition, I'm happy to be joined today by Hernando de Soto, a Peruvian economic and public affairs strategist. Among other things, Mr. de Soto served as an economist for the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT, as president of the Executive Committee for Copper Exporting Countries Organization, governor of Peru's Central Reserve Bank, and as president of the Institute for Liberty and Democracy. Hernando, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Roger, for having me. So I want to begin in perhaps an unexpected or unusual place for those who are listening, and that is that you and I have actually met twice, both on the sidelines of events hosted by the Alaska Federation of Natives. How does a Peruvian economist um, find themselves involved in Alaska? We face similar problems with the natives of Alaska which is that uh, we come from a different culture than uh, the Western one, at least most of our population uh, does, which is an indigenous Amerindian population. And uh, all of a sudden, because of the natural resources beneath our feet, because of our strategic position, we have to move into the bigger world of the global economy, which is essentially a market economy, a competitive economy, uh, called also globalization. And uh, there's no going back then like Anglo-Saxons do and Westerners do, where they say through spontaneous generation, one world war, one uh, um, uh, revolution after another, we sort of uh, the West moves towards something called democratic capitalism in one of its various forms. In our case, uh, we have to move very quickly and we have to plan our way through when it's already very much advanced in developed countries. So we have that in common. We have, a, a, we have the need to take some very deliberate uh, decisions on how you move while still uh, not jolting people out of the culture that they're ac accustomed to and uh, uh, with a lot of valuable resources, as I said, beneath our, uh, beneath our feet, and we started finding out that there were enormous coincidences. I think actually the Alaska Federation of Natives discovered us, 
and we then responded and indeed found out that this was a compared to what happened with other Amerindians in uh, the United States and Canada, uh, that of the Alaska Federation of Natives, how it was involved in politics, the creation of the state. Uh, it was a, a very successful ongoing effort, and so we started learning from each other and trying to find concrete projects in which to uh, develop uh, uh, our strategies, and that's how we connect. We're, we're facing some very similar problems, especially regarding the contradictions, compatibilities, and non-compatibilities between sovereign rights, that is to say rights over territory as a nation, as opposed to property rights, which is uh, rights regarding private groups or private persons. So, so let's explore that a little bit, because I know you've done, and, and you're still active in doing a lot of work on this idea of um, property rights, sovereign rights, um, access to uh, the subsurface um, as ways to uh, enhance capital formation or to facilitate capital formation. And, and in such a way, it doesn't become a uh, either or or an exclusionary set of relationships. It's designed around an inclusionary set of relationships. How does um, the the issues of you know in in the Andean states, the indigenous sitting near the resources, the 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 non-indigenous often controlling the flow of capital in and out of the country. How do these alternate ways of looking at um, land rights and access to resources facilitate? Uh, development within uh, these types of countries? Well, the first thing it does when you pose the questions of rights is who are you talking to and what are you talking about? If you talk about sovereign rights, which is a view about territory, you're basically talking about who governs the rights within a territory. And when you do that, uh, it means that the government is there, national government, and to a certain degree at local scales, like in your case would be statehood, govern uh, the systems of exchange. Uh, they govern they are the systems that re relate to how capital is formed or value is uh, becomes a, a definite point uh, in a price. Now. Interestingly enough, it's a very psychologically emotional area. If I were Mexican, for example, and I say, please give me back Texas, you wouldn't. But if I say, please give me, I want to have the right to buy property in Houston and Austin, you would let me. In other words, there's something about patriotism in the first part that uh, is very unflexible, but at the same time, it lets us know that when you exercise a sovereign right, it's very different than when you exercise a property right or a mineral right, which are essentially about negotiable titles to assets. So uh, what, we, what few people understand when dealing uh, with uh, countries like mine today, the third world, developing country, which most of the people in the, third, in the world are, I think, of the about 8 billion that we are, uh, something like about 7 billion live outside what could be called developed countries, that is to say the United States, North America, and Europe, and a few countries in Asia. 
The rest of us are still in a state of confusion about not ourselves, but the worldview on uh, regarding who we are between what is a property right in our part of the world and what is a sovereign right and the relationship between both. And if you think about those areas in the world where today you have wars like the Ukraine, you will always see that it has to do with uh, trying to understand who's the sovereign, is it Russia or is it Ukraine? Uh, who's got the rights to the metals and who's got the right to the minerals that are below the earth, right? Is it Russia's oil or because it transits through pipelines over the Ukraine, does it belong to the, uh, does it have something to do with the right of Europeans as well as Ukrainians? And when you find out what kind of a right you're dealing with and what kind of rules and laws are behind it is that you can start sorting out problems and finding advantages to, co to cooperation. So um, to us, this idea about, uh, the, to, to us, what uh, is interesting uh, about what, where we find ourselves today, I think uh, both Alaskans and the rest of us, uh, uh, of Indo-Americans, if you want to, or the high influence of indigenous, indigenous blood, is because uh, if we relate to the problems that the United States and Western Europe are involved as they face China and the United States, it very much ha it very much indicates that we have a role to play, or knowledge, or knowing how to pose questions that will be useful to the West, as we hope to the world in general, in terms of how to make sure that this doesn't bust out in an overall war and that everybody understands the issues. For example, I'm not too sure that, uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, the American political body has understood that uh, when I re have to read about your initiative with uh, European countries, which is uh, Build Back a Better World, which, uh, which isn't yet an organization, what kind of a high price you're paying for not having figured out how to uh, consolidate or build up what is essentially uh, an uh, initiative of yours to counter what the Chinese originally called the Silk Road uh, initiative or now the Belt and Road Initiative. What they're doing, because they have a very clear idea on what their sovereignty requires, which is long-term access to the mineral resources and the agricultural resources that they don't have and will be scarce within your part of the world, say within a decade or two, uh, they are today have all already created uh, sovereign relationships with our governments to put ports into place. So you're being challenged regarding the Panama Canal, the um, uh, the uh, uh, the Straits of Gibraltar and Suez, which are shortcuts which unite uh, the possibility of accessing resource, natural resources that exist throughout the world. They've got a whole edge on you. They're about 10 years or so ahead of you in the sense that they have actually claimed property rights and they have a certain sovereign call on ports of entry and exit into different countries. So they're also challenging the shortcuts that you created with the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, and your fleets in both the Mediterranean and the Pacific. And so uh, we have something that's very important regarding that, which is that 
we have one more more of the minerals that you're going to require to have clean energy, which is important for the earth as well uh, as well. And secondly, we seem to we seem to have also the uh, the resources which you would need to be able to substitute uh, the uh, uh, the the oligopoly that both the Russians and the Middle East have as a hold on the Western world because they supply most of your energy through fossil fuels. So um, uh, we think that uh, if you look at what you did with Alaska, how you gained sovereign control over what was territory, used to belong to Russia and is now a state, you did a good move, shall we say, because you've got resources, you've got location, and you've got defense mechanisms. But whatever uh, advantage you had in your fight against communism or fascism, in my part of the world, you've lost that edge. And uh, by talking together within uh, the context of our understanding of what the world's problems are, both Alaskans and us, we think that everybody can get to a better understanding of where we stand today regarding uh, in, uh, you know, areas where lives are being lost on the one hand and much of the world's economy is at stake. So as you note, the, um, you know, the Andean communities are rich in resources, particularly resources that are going to be necessary for an energy transition or for reduced dependence on both uh, foreign uh, hydrocarbon petroleum products and on foreign controls over supply chains of of strategic and critical minerals. Um, the the this area is in the Western Hemisphere. It's right in the U.S. backyard. It's along the Pacific coast, so it's a short sail from China. How are you seeing that rising competition between the United States and China, both? impacting the region, and how do you see the region responding to that growing sense of uh, uh, strategic challenge? Well, it is a strategic challenge in more than one way. It's not only if the United States and its partners in Western Europe, of course Canada included, uh, are going to be able to have a claim to future resources, certainly the Europeans don't have, and which will be indispensable should you uh, wish not to depend on Russia and, uh, and the Middle East uh, vertical governments. But it also, um, it also has uh, uh, to do with ideology and the kind of world you want to live in. The way you've handled it, the way I've seen from American literature, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I do read the newspapers and occasionally a good paper here and there, uh, you're talking post-World uh, War II, of the, uh, and especially post-1990, of a communist system that has collapsed as state, as a, if you want to, as a form of, uh, well, what it is, a collectivist system, and turned into something very different called um, state capitalism. And the way that your scholars describe this is as a confrontation between the state capitalism, say, of China, right, which is, of course, different from the one in, uh, in, in Russia, but they are both very much poli uh, politically controlled. And uh, on the other hand, what you call meritocratic uh, capitalism. But to us, why, what why the reason we have approached you, uh, together with the Alaskans, 
uh, that is to say your, uh, your authorities, is to, is to tell you that if you are concerned about how the world is going to be governed, the, uh, the uh, respect there is for China's state capitalism today now surpasses in my part of the world uh, the admiration that they have for uh, meritocratic capitalism. Because it's not only about meritocracy, it is that to create capitalism that is people-based, that is based on giving not only governments power, but also empowering individuals and voluntary organizations, that is not the way China goes. China is about creating a government that supplies its people with the resources that they don't have and the locations they need to bring these, these stuffs inside. What's interesting for us Latin Americans, for example, who are raised, aside from the fact that we have an indigenous background, are raised within the Western culture, uh, is that you're bottom-up people. Basically, what you did as you empowered different uh, uh, eth uh, ethnic groups and uh, cultural groups and religious groups in the United States is that capitalism was rooted in what people needed and wanted and what turned out to be most efficient. It wasn't top-down like the Chinese, and so we're missing you. If you want, we're missing uh, that, uh, that presence of yours. And you, on the other hand, are, uh, have, uh, have by withdrawing or not converting your um, uh, Build Back Better World initiative into an organization that can actually counter uh, state capitalism, are opening up uh, the world to governments that are going to be closer to who are your rivals today uh, that they're going to be closer to us than you are going to be to us. And that worries me. I like competition, and I like it's inevitable that we have better relations with the Chinese because we're all part of the basin, and they're just, you know, they're, they're just water away. It's so, it's so easy. We, we need you to balance out that effect and to give us the possibility of, uh, the possibility of choice. So there's another thing that you do not exercise uh, enough uh, because you're probably not conscious of it as Americans because you take it for granted since it was, it was born through a couple of centuries of experiences and failures, which is your extremely sophisticated capital markets. You know, capital markets for us, at least for me, are not just about places where you produce money. It's where you produce, uh, it is where you basically study capital, which is not money, but it is things which in the future will have value. And what your capital markets do is say we is have the expertise, the lawyers, the economists, the practices, the rules, the 1933-1934 anti-fraud acts, the Sarbanes-Huxley stuff, all the things that characterize capital markets are essentially all about uh, identifying and developing potential. That is to say, things that do not exist, but that potentially could exist. I mean, it's an incredible sort of collective creation of the United States and the Western world. As opposed to the Marxist idea, which is literally, and I quote Karl Marx, capital only exists once as a concrete good. The rest is hokey, it's baloney, it's, uh, it's wind, it's smoke bad chattel, 
Uh, it is paper that does not respond to a right or to something that could exist. So what we like about the, uh, the American way of looking at things, capital markets, is not that they just only produce money, but they produce money on the basis of giving value to potential. And that's what Alaskans have and what we have. We are probably richer than you are in terms of natural resources, or certainly will be within two, uh, two decades. But the problem we have is that we do not have the institutions and the markets which allow us to translate that potential into something negotiable and that can be developed into value. So you are being missed as you start losing out uh, in, uh, in having the influence that China has in our, part of the wor- uh, uh, in, in our part of the world, and it would be a good idea if you came back and competed at it and also realized that in the process you may want to have your government engage much more forcefully in the market because obviously it is not only about separating government and uh, it is not only about separating government uh, from private sector, but just like you do any time that you're at war, whether it's a cold war or a hot war, you have to involve government. You have to involve government and you haven't done that yet. And, you, and that's because you probably haven't realized how big the challenge you're facing is. Well, this comes to, I think, one of the, the sort of um, difficult philosophical questions, I guess, or political philosophical questions in the United States and in the West, particularly after three decades of assuming that the Western liberal order won uh, and is the inevitable path of the future. You know, the the framing of the conflict between the United or the conflict in Ukraine is being argued as a uh, battle of democracy versus autocracy. The U.S.-China competition is viewed as democracy versus autocracy or free markets versus, um, you know, government controlled markets, closed markets and things of that sort. And that that ideological framework, well, clearly, um, you know, even in the midst of the Cold War, the ideology drove things, but actions frequently contradicted the ideology. Not every U.S. ally was a democracy in the Cold War. Many were um, uh, clearly autocracies or even dictatorships. Um, the, the, the U.S. is engaged in uh, controls uh, on its own market um, right now under, under the guise of, of inflation reduction and new energy with things like the IRA. So elements of protectionism are back in play. At the same time, in Latin America, there's this perception of the rise of the new left, which from a political perspective makes it difficult for for Washington to reach out and engage or to feel that it can easily reach out and engage in the region. Um, how do you see that, that n- new left both as impacting the opportunities or the constraints on um, Western willingness to engage and therefore to be able to better um, access those resources or bring those alternate ideas or capital markets? And and how is that new left reflecting underlying thoughts in Latin America right now? All right. The, I, the way I see it, there's uh, two replies to one question. Um, uh, the first thing is that um, there's two ways to understand a market economy. 
What we have in our constitutions in Latin America, like, of course, the Europeans do, especially the Germans, is we do not define ourselves as market economies, but about as social market economies. Now, what does that word social mean? It is a result, among other things, of uh, all the thinking that went into creating the new Europe after a disastrous Second World War where over 60 million people were supposed, supposedly died. And the idea was, what do you do when you find yourself in a situation where the market does not respond to reality? And that's where the social comes in. Government has got to come in and get us close to doing something that will make the market work. So that's a result that why, why the Europeans are more interventionists in their market economies than you are. Whenever it doesn't work, they come in. And probably uh, the Germans, uh, compared to us, have seven times more judges than we do because we don't have the tradition like you do of judge-made law. Uh, we have law, uh, that is to say jurisprudence. We are uh, most of the world uh, that is not of Anglo-Saxon origin, Uh, is governed by statutory law, that is to say Roman law. And so what we've had to do after 2,400 years of Roman law, we can't just brush it aside if it didn't exist. What we try to do is copy whatever things we've learned from your jurisprudence and work into it. So what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is it would be a good idea if your governments... Uh, Uh, if you're, when your governments intervene abroad, you also thought in the same way. Uh, here you have yourself, we've got all the right values, the meritocracy, etc., but you're not going to be able to have a long-term view of what you can do as a, as a planetary power uh, unless uh, you find a way of getting the vision thing as a, a former President Bush would have called it, inside your political decisions. Because the way your companies work, it's rare to find an American or Western company that has got actually a political view on things. They are basically entrepreneurs. You know, they're foremen. They go out and organize things, and they got to turn a profit. And if they don't sell the first year, uh, well, then they're not interested in the business. While the Chinese have a longer view, which is today, I may not have the resources, uh, I may not need these resources, but I already know that in 10 years or five years from now, I will. Or maybe just at the, well, look at what's happening in the Ukraine. You didn't even have to wait 10 years to know that you needed our resources. All you needed was six months of war. So you've got to bring in government-type thinking or what I think is known in the United States as K-Street stuff. You know, all these guys working in the private sector to help private companies get a long view, which I don't know, might be the objective of Straffer for, for all I can guess. The second thing I think that is important is that who says that you have only uh, our governments to work with? Why do you think about government-to-government -government stuff? Why don't you think of working also uh, with, our, uh, with uh, civil society? I mean, I am part of civil society, And uh, I worked pretty well with a think tank in Peru that solved coup d'etats. We, we, brought, we brought down the shining path. You collaborated uh, and got involved in South African affairs, backing up people like Mandela, backing up people like the African National Union. I'm talking about war there. But there are, you also brought down communism through Radio Free Europe. I mean, think about it. 
Um, when communism fell, if you take away Romania, uh, it was done without one shot, one gunshot. And you did it all by being very active and supporting your private sector through a variety of means. You sold more blue jeans, you sold culture, you sold uh, rock, and, rock and roll bands. You made the, the, West a very, the Western idea a very attractive one. And you brought down, without using missiles, a whole, a whole uh, wannabe civilization. So uh, I, th I think that uh, you've, got to th you've got to stop also, I'm, and I'm afraid that has a lot to do also with your diplomatic service, thinking that the only way that you can engage in Latin America is through the government. You can also talk to us. I mean, there's a lot of us around. I mean, in my, in my stuff in Peru, everything I've managed to get across, the defender of the people, the ombudsman, the titling system, the recording system that we created, the doing business sector of the World Bank, which is the most successful project the, bank, uh, the World Bank had, we did it, and we never got the Peruvian government involved. We did it directly with you, with Western powers, and it's only when you came in that the governments of our country said, yeah, you know, uh, they may be right. So, you know, just the same way that you sell uh, that you sell to the ground floor, I think you've got to learn, go, go back to doing that. It doesn't have to be government-to-government -government staff stuff. I mean, the reason the Chinese are where they are and the Russians are, in many cases, in the Middle East where they are as well, is because they didn't limit themselves to talking to standing governments. They talked to people, to tribes, uh, to, uh, uh, to, civil, uh, to civil society. So, I mean, I'm thinking as I go along, you, you've lost your capacity to talk to the little people, which is how you, got, you went from shining sea to shining sea, and how you defeated your enemies and how your ideas traveled. You didn't sell capitalism or democratic capitalism to our government. You showed it with, through concrete examples to most of our people that communism wasn't worth looking at, nor fascism was. You did that, didn't do that government to government. I wonder why now you can't make that step ahead, and I think that that's what's behind this Alaskan, uh, shall we say, Peruvian initiative. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting um, <clears throat> observation. Per perhaps it is that in the in the post Cold War attempt to uh, vilify quote Cold War thinking, um, it eliminated not only the concept of you know the 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 idea of military um, competition and and purely viewing things in competition, but it also somehow undermined these ideas of of as you're talking about the civil society initiatives. Which were actually a major part of the Cold War, uh, but in but in again in trying to get rid of the idea of the Cold War and think of a new modern globalization, um, some of those tools maybe got uh, got shoved aside earlier than were necessary um, for the United States, and maybe as the United States really starts to recognize or to to drive its policy based on this concept of strategic competition. That some of these actions uh, start coming back into play. Yes, I for the moment, you know, if I had more time, I would probably, uh, I would probably tell you know that uh, in certain ways, I mean, what uh, Silicon Valley and computer stuff coming out of, uh, apart from the, apart from the bank thing uh, of recent, you know, 
what they've done for, you know, the creation, what they've done for the kind of ideas that you represent about freedom uh, is absolutely incredible. You know, the whole idea of the metaverse, uh, the whole idea of uh, blockchain. I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies. All of that has been extremely useful for westernizing an enormous part of our, uh, uh, of, our, uh, of our population. Or when I've had the pleasure and the honor of uh, traveling around the world with President Clinton, because I'm an, also, among other things, an FOB, friend of Bill's, I get on the plane with... Uh, with your movie actors, uh, he never uh, he, he travels with all sorts of comedians, Kevin Spacey, Bono, etc. And that means to say that he realized that maybe American politicians aren't very, uh, very ex uh, what can I tell you, popular abroad, but American musicians, American poets, American actors are very popular. So the, he, he they use them all the time. And uh, I'm not saying that it's confined to that. I'm just giving you an example that, unbeknownst to you, you deliberately addressed other things. And somehow or other, you, everything that's foreign affairs, you have made it, uh, you have locked yourself into only one dimension. And one dimension that requires an organization. I mean, here's your President Biden saying, you know, don't rub China the wrong way. And Nancy Pelosi got on an airplane. And uh, the way you Americans are organized, you don't only have a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, let's say a State Department executive branch, you've also got in the legislative branch. And uh, I think it's time to revise the nature of this because you are under attack or we are all under attack by a different enemy than the one we had 10 years ago. And I think we have to rise to the occasion to understand that people that have pu public policy issues in their heads are very important for private enterprise at this time because private enterprises, they have to meet very short-term objectives, are simply not prepared to deal with a long-term war. You've had to improvise yourselves into the Ukraine war, and you're doing very well if you want to for the moment, but God knows if you're looking at how well you're looking at the distant future and the connection of the Ukraine to Peruvian and, uh, I don't know, uh, Chilean copper, to give one example, and how you're, n you're not using your Alaskans well because we sympathize very much with Alaskans. They're faced with the same problems. I mean, here you are all, I mean, it's incredible. In Latin America, uh, what we've been seeing in the last year, in the last... Uh, three to four years is Iranians coming here talking perfect Spanish, absolutely aware of what our customs are. As a matter of fact, with the same skin color we have, with the same sort of extreme politeness, da 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 da, da and, uh, and you're not using your Alaskans the right way. They, have a, they, they, they make a lot of sense to us. And it's a way of also showing how much you do respect people from different cultures. It's, uh, uh, it should be looked at. Well, I think you, you've given us the, the, the starting point for the next conversation. Uh, we'll, we'll have to keep this going at some point. Um, and, and I think one of the things that you're really pointing out is, you know, a, a, an old classic geopolitical concept, which, you know, Halford McKinder emphasized particularly in his Democratic Ideals and Reality in 1919. And that is that if you have a, a government-driven long-term ideological intent, you have to understand the baseline reality first and work within that construct to move towards your intent 
rather than just assuming or thinking that your intent is obvious and, and the path for everybody and just trying to push it forward without looking at um, what the ground truths are. And, and I think it's important, you know, as you raise here, there are a lot of different uh, perceptions and a lot of different layers of reality. And, and if one doesn't spend the time to try to uh, understand them and think of different ways to engage, different ways to interact, different ways to um, perceive the the sort of stimulus and response that may be taking place, then frequently uh, good intent can end up having very um, uh, opposite results. I, can you give me the name again of the mention, person you mentioned, 1919? That's uh, Sir Halford McKinder. Sir Halford McKinder. Yep. How, uh, how do you spell that, please? M-A-C-K-I-N-D-E-R. Yeah, that's easy. Well, yeah, that's one of the interesting aspects. I think also what has happened is that over time with these wonderful initiatives, I mean really good initiatives, like the Peace Corps, because I've seen how it affects uh, you know people throughout the third world, uh, on the one hand, or you know micro enterprise, uh, the you know your governments have taken intent on that, but what they've uh, what they and and there's no doubt that they do a lot of good, but on the other hand, they also uh, make everybody think that uh, uh, but of thinking, but there's also somehow or other hidden behind that a certain prejudice. The prejudice is that uh, uh, is that uh, small is beautiful. So when you go to Ethiopia or places like that, and you see a lot of uh, people who are very skinny and small, instead of saying, "Now, how do I make them grow strong and and thick and uh, energetic?" You say, "No, let's give them little pants and let's give them little shirts." Instead of trying to find out what stops them from reaching large-scale markets. So I think that also one of the things that has happened in terms of your capacity to assist, and I've told President Clinton that many times, your capacity to assist has been what we call in Spanish asistencialismo, right? You look at poor people and you give them what they're missing instead of, well, the usual thing is you give them fish instead of giving them the fishing pole. And you don't think of them as possibly large entrepreneurs, which they can easily be as many rich uh, Middle Eastern people and even Latin Americans have proved. So there is also, uh, uh, that's why I think there's also space here for talking about, I mean, who am I to say it, not being a North American, but uh, there's also space here for saying that you may need a new organization. In other words, what's behind this Build Back Better world uh, has got to be one that looks at the Halford McKinder sort of stuff that you're talking about. It's got to be a new, uh, it's got to be a new angle and you've got to get politics into it it's got to be a very deliberate action uh, and uh, not think of it in terms of war because we're not at war at this moment with you or anybody in Latin America but let me tell you they uh, my problem is not that they won elections or didn't win elections plus all of this mumbo jumbo about the left wing coming in Latin America they're very different kinds of left you know I, have, I personally have no fear of Lula, etc. But if the shining path comes back to Peru, that's, uh, that's Pol Pot. That is uh, uh, the, uh, the Khmer Rouge. 
So there are all sorts of different things, which if you talk, if I go tomorrow to a meeting at the World Economic Forum, and it's just among entrepreneurs, they won't even know what I'm talking about. You, well, some of them will, but most of them won't know about it. You really need policymakers in that sense. And you may want to have lobbying, uh, intellectual type of organizations. My friends call them the K Street sort of guys, uh, come into this. I mean, one how, one way or another, the strategy has got to be not only how your government changes policy, but how you engage your own private sector to help them out where they've got a blind spot today. Well, sir, this is a, this is a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, I think we are nearing our time. Um, but I, I definitely want to make sure we continue this conversation at a later date. And, and Hernando, thank you so much for, for being willing to talk with me today. Very good. Roger, it's been great. I really appreciate it. Learned a lot from it. And I know the value of good questions. Well, thank you, sir, again. All the best, Roger. Thanks for listening. We've been talking with Hernando DeSoto, President of the Institute for Liberty and Democracy and globally recognized development theorist and global economist. If you would like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting global geopolitical balances, visit rainnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.